You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Duty about AI for clinical trials. And there's a really interesting application that probably your study can benefit from as well. So stay tuned. We have a growing community on LinkedIn. So head over to LinkedIn. If you're not signed up there already, then I would strongly recommend that because that is where others in the industry will find you if you're there and then find the effective statistician group join there or follow me on LinkedIn. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video on demand content library free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm talking about a really, really interesting topic and that is AI. Yeah. Another, you know, buzzword that is around all the time. But I think today there's really, really some, you know, awesome technology. And it's not just logistic regression that's called AI, but uh, really something that is uh, quite fancy. And for that, I have someone with me who is a statistician in the pharma industry and has actually worked on this specific topic that we want to talk about today. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alexander. I'm very glad to be here. Very good. So maybe you can start with introducing yourself first. Absolutely. So to our viewers, my name is Duti Roy. Um, I'm a statistician who works in this pharmaceutical company called Boehringer Ingelheim. It's a German pharmaceutical company who have uh, many offices around the world. I work in the U.S. Richfield office. It's located in Connecticut. Um, I have been at my job now for five and a half years, and I got a chance and opportunity to work on this really interesting topic, and I'm very excited to share the story with you. Yeah, awesome. We have actually something in common here because I have worked at Beringer as well. Uh, Beringer is, has this really, really nice interesting name that probably no one outside of Germany can actually pronounce if they read it. <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I've, I've worked for it, uh, for, for Beringer in 2002 to 2004, um, mainly actually on HIV, which, uh, which was a very, very interesting period. But um, yeah, and actually at that point, um, in my career, one of these things that was really, really interesting and that we had a lot of look into was um, whether the patients were actually taking these pills. And of course, it's a virus 
you know, it's virology and, you know, in the pandemic now, everybody knows about, you know, how, how important uh, virology is and um, also how important being, you know, adherent to your medication is. Yeah, at that time, I remember that there were lots of discussions about if the patients take the pills, how good is it working? Yeah, and there were even some studies done in patients that are in prison and where you would, you know, directly observe how they are taking the pill. Yeah. And with these kind of uh, studies, uh, you could actually show that having very, very good adherence or compliance, yeah, um, had a dramatic effect on the efficacy overall. Yeah. And so one of the um, drivers of lots of these, you know, failure of, of the treatment was in, in essence failure in terms of adherence to the, the treatment schedule. All kinds yeah, of different and, and reasons is, can be for that. Yeah. Um, and this is exactly the story, I think, in most of the, the drugs that are being made. I feel that an underlying assumption is always, well, if you take the drug, what can the drug do for you? Uh, but if you don't take the drug, no one takes any guarantees, right? That That's the underlying message anyway. Um, and I feel that that's a reason why even we went on to collect compliance. However, naively or whatever was adequately available at that point, maybe, but that's the whole reason why you even have that question in your case record forms, right? For a patient that, what is the proportion of times a patient took the drug? Yeah, um, we had and, pill counts right, at that time. Right, <laughs> and, and basically uh, that is the pill counts, exactly, you're right. So, so what happens is you just ask the patient, well, can you bring back your empty pill bottle? So if there were like 100 pills before and now you have 50, then you say, okay, the patient has taken, you know, 50% of the medication. But whether yeah. those 50 pills went inside the patient or went in the garbage bin, you <laughs> don't know. And, and, and that, is, that, is, that, that is the challenge. That's the challenge, right? Because before we had no way of following these patients, uh, you know, in their house, in their daily lives to make sure that we see it with our eyes. Yeah. and confirm uh, yeah. on a large scale, right? So for a pharmaceutical company like BI or any other major pharmaceutical companies, they treat like thousands of patients uh, all, over the, all over the world. It's not, uh, you know, operationally feasible to follow each patient around and say, oh, let me check, did you take your drug? So that yeah. didn't happen, right? Um, and, and, and this is something um, I, I came into uh, contact with while working in the CNS area. So I work in the central nervous system uh, mental health diseases while in BI. Uh, this is this is basically also an area where the doctors know, in fact, that the patients are not taking their medications regularly. And uh, in yeah. some peer-reviewed research, we have seen uh, that they just did a blood test on the patient during their visit to the site and boom, the blood test shows no trace of drug, but the half-life of the drug is too long. So how yeah. can there be no drug? <laughs> so, so, so the doctors know that clearly this patient has been missing and, and you know, missing doses. And, and hence, uh, why this is more important, because, you know, if you're measuring efficacy of, of a drug and you don't take the drug, how can you then expect the drug to do anything? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we yeah. all know in CNS how many trials fail. Actually, most trials fail. This is a funny story. When I start, started in CNS, one of my seniors in the company told me this. Well, you know, most trials fail. 
And and I and I told her, well, I was in it for the statistics and the interesting things that you can do there. Um, and if in the way we get a drug, that's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so, so this was basically something we were seeing uh, uh, in the in the past couple of years, and then we got aware of this vendor called AI Cure. Um, so, so what they essentially came and told us was that well, they have a way of video recording a patient. So they they built an app, right? Yeah. So they and the app, what it does is when you are taking a drug, they are going to record your video, and then these videos will get processed through a neural network model. to identify or classify you as correctly taken the drug or not so they can identify if you are the right person like a yep. facial recognition feature it can also yep. identify the right pill yeah. so for example if you are supposed to take an orange oblong pill and and the video captures you taking a black round pill it will say sorry you took the wrong drug Ah, okay, that's really cool. So, yeah, so this is the this is really the topic of of the uh, episode today, where we talk about this interesting, you know, smartphone app which uh, records this, and it's called uh, AI Cure. Really interesting kind of combination of words here, uh, and you'll find actually the. Uh, link to this in the show notes. So just head over to theeffectivestatistician.com, find the, find this episode, and you'll have it there. Or just go to your podcast player, and you'll find the uh, details there. <laughs> so, in terms of that, so tell me a little bit more about how you brought that into the company for for your uh, for your work. Right, right. So, so basically, this is not me who brought AIQ to the company. We have actually a clinician who is the the project lead uh, for schizophrenia program in BI. His name is Dr. Michael Sand, and he is really a visionary in that sense. So, he always knows about what's going on in the field and keeps his like hand right on the pulse. So he mm-hmm. was one of the first people to propose that we engage with AIQ. Uh, that was probably three years ago or so. and then you know it was to be honest i didn't even know about ai cure very well until like 2020 beginning i was like okay there are so many vendors we engage with this is just another vendor just some data which is being collected what's what's the great about great about it yeah, yeah. um but last year i i i was sitting through a meeting and this was pre covid so people were in the room man there were 20 people in the room and they were all <laughs> discussing what you know data ai cure has been collecting what kind of trends they can see um and there was one lady from ai cure who made this comment that you know we think our data has some predictive ability abilities and and that got my interest it was like what predictive abilities <laughs> what do you mean right so then they really broke that data down and showed us what the data was doing so essentially each and every day they're collecting in some way behavioral data on patient right yeah. some patient are regularly taking their drug right at the time of the alert sometime they they just missed the dose sometimes they had to be intervened by a site personnel and then they would get get back again and some people would just not take the dose okay so so and and they basically saw that this pattern is quite consistent it's not like a patient you know like uh, starts being non adherent and suddenly switches into being adherent if there is no intervention that is so for example i am a patient who kind of like misses like 50% of my doses anyway and i would continue doing that all throughout okay so their their thought was well could we use this early adherence data 
and predict what the patient's final adherence is going to look like. And, and this is really important, right? Because in the end, uh, for example, in a phase three trial, if your adherence or compliance is too low, many times we would just exclude that patient from the primary analysis, which means you're losing sample size, which yeah. means your power is going to drop, yeah. right? So people care about this stuff. And then basically we thought, okay, why not just like try out a project, uh, say three months projects with a, with a student and see if this data can actually do something. So that that's was the beginning. <laughs> that was the beginning of my exploration uh, of this AI cure data. So let, let's step back for a moment in terms of what uh, AI cure actually does. So yes. it's, it's an app on your phone and you basically, um, when you, um, you include it in your uh, study, And you can then record all kind of different data around it. You can, you know, see typical questionnaire you can embed into this. But you can also use the camera of your of the smartphone to basically uh, point at your face, you know, uh, with a backwards camera. Uh, and then, you know, hold the pole in, in front of this camera and then show the camera how you're taking it. Pretty and much. that is basically, you know, then demonstration of that you have taken it. And then, of course, the, the time is taken. And if there's, you know, if you haven't taken it, then you get a reminder and all these kind of different things. Correct. Yeah. So I, I think the AI part of this. So, so far, what you have described is basically a video recording, right? Yeah. But I think the interesting part of this, why this is scalable and feasible is because there is not, there is no human review at every video. Because yeah. then again, we are going back the same way, following yeah. every patient and checking whether you have taken the rose. So what they essentially brought to the table was this AI model, which essentially processes videos pixel yeah. by pixel and could classify correctly most of the time that whether the patient is taking the dose at the right, the right dose at the right person, right time or not. So yeah. thereby, imagine in a trial, let's say you identify 20% at a time patient population who are not doing what they're supposed to do. So that reduces the side burden, right? Yeah. So you yeah. can now focus your attention on just those 20% people and say, okay, let me see if I can encourage those patients to follow and be compliant instead, right? Yeah. Before we had no heads up, like who is compliant, who is not, who knows, right? We didn't have any heads up, we didn't know. So the site couldn't focus on those people who actually need help because we saw in their behavioral pattern that some people, for example, would be compliant, 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 and then just drop off the radar. And now because the sites are getting these alerts, by the way, this patient is falling off the wagon a little bit, they would give them a call or some sort of intervention and bang the patients back on, Yeah. right? Yeah. So in the end, this patient has pretty good compliance only because we monitored and intervened at the right time instead of basically in a normal situation, you would have no clue. The patient yeah. would just fall off the wagon. You know, you know what I mean? So yeah. in some sense, this app has now improved the quality of the data. It has also improved the overall compliance of the trial. Yeah. And you get these data in real time. Yeah, that's another yes. kind of difference. It's not kind of that you get it a couple of you know, months later, <laughs> um, like we used to do with a pill count, yeah, it's, you know, that, that patient probably already died or something like this. And then, you know, you <laughs> hope not. <laughs> hope not. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, 
yeah, it's it's you wonder about the compliance, but here you get it really directly, and you can directly interfere. Yeah, in in a timely fashion, the uh, the sites directly see what is happening, and can directly get back calls that patient or whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And and during our project, we basically took this one step further. We mm-hmm. were essentially exploring. Well, right now that's a situation that you can real-time, the sites can real-time see which patient is dropping off the radar and follow up with them. But we were more interested in knowing, could we know in advance which patients are going to fall off the radar? Is that possible? Okay, the prediction part, yeah. Exactly, because because in what I understood when I, you know, spoke and uh, uh, sort of like spoke to my ClinOps colleagues or the people who were actually uh, in in the operational side of the of the trial management, they said that getting heads up means everything to them. Yeah. Because usually this is such a complex machinery around a clinical trial, immediately doing something is a difficult problem because people would have to allocate resource, plan it out, and then do it. That's how we are used to. Yeah. So, so hence, they really appreciated getting sort of like a heads up time when they can strategize and then act and still it's okay. You're not basically losing out opportunities to act. So, so basically, that's where why the predictive piece was very interesting for us that, okay, if we could, in fact, tell you after observing a patient for a couple of weeks that, by the way, XYZ patients are going to be more at a risk of you know, non-adherent behavior, then you could focus on them from the beginning instead of waiting for them to you know, exhibit such behavior, for example. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that, was, that was the goal and intent of what we did uh, in the summer. I have to say that this is not really just statistics working. Um, I thought about the project, but there were so many other people, especially the clinical leader um, and, and, the, and the clinical trial leader, they, they supported all through. Uh, yeah. They were basically very excited about this opportunity and they didn't think, oh my God, statistics, like what complicated models are you talking about? <laughs> they were totally on, uh, you know, up for it, on it and, and was part of the team. So it was a really cool experience. Yeah, I think the, the cool thing here is because the benefits were directly tangible to them. You know, it was for them, it, they don't care about which exact AI model sits in this app. They really don't care. And in terms of the prediction, what kind of prediction model you have actually used and, you know, all these kind of different things that you can do, they really don't care. But they, what they cared about was your help and the help from the vendor in terms of helping them solve their problems. And so uh, that that is very true. I I feel that we ended up also using machine learning models uh, for the prediction piece. But that being said, you're right, they don't really care about what model we use, but rather, I think I think my the clinical trial leader once told me this, that, you know, our goal is to make sure when you build this model, you're not calling bad people good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? If we call good people bad, we don't have too much of a downside because then just a few extra patients get followed up. However, yeah. if we call bad people good, that's a problem because then we are essentially just like letting letting the ball drop, right? Some We'll lose some patients anyway. So essentially, you know, in a model building, you have to optimize the model based on certain criteria and this became then a criteria and we yeah. could explain back to the clinical team, well, you gave us this feedback, right? So this model specifically cares about 
whether we are calling bad people good or not and we try to minimize that and and that was the story uh then how we could like convince them that to use it yes and that is another kind of very important feature in terms of you need to have a good business background so that you uh, select the best models here yeah it's it's obviously in this case you know the two different arrows have a hugely different impact one is just having an impact on you know it's it's more burden whereas the other hand really has an impact on the trial outcome and so knowing that and then you know selecting your model that optimizes you know not just the the sum of both arrows that really focuses on the ones that that counts is is really important so in terms of this app it could even have an impact on the overall design of the study yeah so i've worked on some cns studies where we had a so called pl- blinded placebo run in yeah so so patients would be on all patients would be on placebo first for an unknown period to them and only if they were non responders they would be uh, randomized and so here you could also have you know something like adherence filter in it so that you only randomize those patients that will take some medication and it's not- really interesting that you yeah. say that cuz this is exactly the thing that we are working on right now uh, yeah. when we develop this predict- prediction model we developed two models one model we call it like the early prediction model which can be actually used precisely for this yeah. as a blinded placebo run in where you track patients behavior and you run this model and if the model says these are going to be adherent patients you enroll right yeah. uh, but but basically i think where i saw the struggle uh, from the operational part is you know the the clinical trial leaders often have to also consider what amount of patients are getting screened versus screen failure right so obviously you know that implementing a placebo leadin model is going to in fact increase the screen failure rate because yeah. you know ideally you would have maybe just uh, because based on the inclusion exclusion criteria you could have left out 20% 30% people now you probably be leaving out 50% people and and that's a problem because that extends the timeline so we had to go back and explain to them how in the end if you let all patients in you're anyway going to lose these patients it's yep. not something that you are losing additional patients you're just trying to proactively solve the problem which you're going to find in the middle of the trial you actually want to use these patients at that point or moment in time and a higher screen failure rate is here actually something positive but of course you know if you have a culture where everybody thinks about high screen failure is you know by definition negative yeah you need to have a lot more ex- explanation and communication around agreed basically there is this operational part to be considered to like from our perspective as statisticians we care about good patients and and make sure that all the endpoint data gets collected right at the time when they're supposed to however from the operational perspective and this is again came out of these innumerable conversations we were having with the, with the people who were involved in the operational part of the trial that it, it, they have to also answer to their bosses about like, what happened when i mean you are screening people and they're all getting out are you not doing a good job or the trial is taking too long to complete recruitment um i i feel that because these concepts are so new it's not like every other industry in the in every other uh, company in the in and in their trials use aiq or type of screening 
Yeah. So it's also it's also like when you look for examples in the industry, there are none right now. So so it's it's also that way a little jittery from the leader's perspective. That should I do this? Would I end up with like too long a trial? Would I be able to even complete the trial? Those kind of questions happen. But hopefully, I think the best part is that during this past year. AI cure became so much more than a vendor to us. I mean, we almost feel like this collaborative research team who meet every couple of weeks and discuss all sorts of problems, and mostly on a theoretical level. And they have the um, data from other sponsors too, so they can bring insights, which, for example, assuage your fears a little bit, yeah. because they can tell us. So one question which uh, which the clinician asked was, well, you know, so far the models you have developed is actually on the data which has been collected after randomization. But yeah. now you guys are proposing implementing this pre-randomization. How do you know that these two patient behavior is comparable? Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we just focus on our data, we have no way of answering that because we haven't done that other part. Yeah. yeah. So and that's where I came in and said, oh well. That's not that difficult. We have the data, so <laughs> we can do this for you. And and this is amazing, right? Because there's there's research questions which can be answered jointly in a much more simpler, concrete fashion, as opposed to guessing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So data data is always more convincing than you know just as guesswork, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, what I found also really interesting is when I looked into the homepage, and here especially kind of you know this neuroscience studies are of course um, of help is you see the uh, the facial expression, and you can also analyze the facial expression. So in terms of feelings of anxiety, depression, pain these type of things. And they are, you know, common things that you look into when you look into uh, neuroscience studies. Maybe, you know, at, at one point that comes, becomes also an, as, an, as an additional endpoint that, that you can actually see much more on the face, like um, how is the patient doing? And so maybe that's, that's another future for, for these kind of, um, yeah, Really, AI-driven analysis. I, I totally agree. Actually, now that you mentioned, you know, I, I was uh, working in some oncology trials uh, in the beginning of my career, and then uh, there was this questionnaire called drug acceptability questionnaire, right? So you would yeah. basically ask people, mm -hmm. did you have difficulty swallowing? How did it taste? Was it pleasant, etc.? Uh, but I was thinking that if similar things can, you can directly observe from the from the patient's face. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that's definitely possible. That's that that is that is does not sound like a huge stretch of imagination uh, uh, yeah. to 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 make it happen. That's true. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the other interesting piece which the uh, you know this opportunity brought to the table was also the concept of ongoing monitoring. Yeah. So so we were thinking, well, you know. Fine. We now know that first couple of weeks of data can predict the you know how the end. Uh, total average adherence is going to be. That's great. But in fact, AI Cure gives you daily data. Every day of the trial the patient is in, you get the data. So why even stop with just first two weeks, right? What could we do more with the rest of the data that's being collected regularly? And we came up with this ongoing monitoring. I mean, it, in the trial, ongoing monitoring is always a thing, right? You have these review meetings where people review data, but that's only every three months, 
right? So we were thinking, well, we have to move away from this every three months, every four months model and look at like, you know, as frequently as possible. Obviously, reviewing every day is not something yeah. we have time or resource for, but something more frequently than every three months, right? So thereby we came up with the idea of building an app around it, right? Yeah. So why not just have an app uh, which can be hosted on a domain and at any time point has the latest information uh, related to a trial's adherence data. You just need to click it once, it'll refresh and you can see how your patients are doing. Yeah. So that also uh, was a really interesting bit of work because this needed a lot of feedback from our end users, which is basically the clinical trial monitors and, and leaders because they don't understand what's going on with these complicated models. So yeah. we had to work with them that what means, what is important to you? What would you like to know? What would you like to know first? What would you like to know second? And that whole iterative process of developing that app was also really, really cool because it kind of like gives an insight into what is important to the other person Maybe the things we would notice first is not something they would care about first, you know. Yeah. Um, so now that app is also in place and, and we were basically encouraging all trials um, in, in this domain who has access to like, your data to also use the app uh, and make sure that, you know, you can regularly um, get an understanding how your patients are doing. That's a really good point. It actually links back to an earlier episode that I where I interviewed um, Steve Pike from, from GSK. And these type of analysis, one of the topics that he asks statisticians to have a much more dive into all the operational aspects of clinical trials, because there is so much improvement possible in terms of timelines, which directly um, increases the speed to which you get uh, the patients, uh, the treatments to the patients, as well as reducing costs and burden about, around the clinical trials. Yeah, If you need to have an intervention only on 10% of your patients in terms of uh, monitoring, then all the patients, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And that, that, you know, you can very easily probably pay a couple of additional statisticians from this money that you save there. So uh, it's, it's... Yeah, we are cheap. <laughs> yeah, we are really, we are really cheap compared to the overall thing. Completely yeah. It's, it's when, when I entered the industry, and it's probably now more extreme, um, some of my new supervisors said to me, you know, 90% of the internal costs for, for study. So only the inter internal ones, yeah? Not, not talking about uh, paying the physicians to actually do those studies. The internal costs, 90% of that is operations, clinical operations. Of the rest, 10%, 90% is data management. And then the rest is statistics, medical writing, and all the other things. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised at this information. I, I also feel that we don't add that much of a cost burden as opposed to the whole trial where, where you spend millions and millions of dollars on, on these sites and uh, getting the patients, etc. I think the other piece which uh, AIQR makes it attractive for patients is this reimbursement factor. They, they, they have this thing called micro, micro reimbursement for patients. So they kind of try to in, in, incentivize patients yeah. to use the app. Because uh, usually what happens in, in, at least in our trials, use of this app is kind of 
patient dependent. A patient might want to say, no, I don't want to use this app. And then there is no reinforcement that, no, you have to use it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to care about what they think. If someone doesn't want to use it, how do you make them know you have to? Um, so with this added incentives, maybe the patients find it easier. I think we were very pleasantly surprised in our trials where we see that majority patient actually, and by majority, I mean like, you know, 85, 90% patients without any being even told, they were like, oh, your app is completely fine. And it also tells you in today's day and age, apps have become so integrated to our lives, right? Yeah. I mean, from yeah. the time we wake up to the time we go to the gym to we go to bed, apps are everywhere. And it's not such a big deal. It doesn't add yeah. to the patient burden um, as opposed to like doing another battery of tests, which might take three hours of the patient's time. Yeah, completely so, agree. If you see, if you look into these kind of standard tests for um, depression or schizophrenia or this or quality of life, you know, you have you have you know lots of questions that you need to um, answer. And if you would do that on a daily basis, that would be a lot of dropouts just because people don't want to fill in anymore these, these questionnaires. So uh, I think that's a, that's a really important part that you can probably I mean, do much easier. Because let's be honest, right? I mean, if someone told me you have to fill like three hours worth of questionnaires every day, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> I really, who, who wants to, right? Because many of these patients, they have their, you know, personal life too. They go to work, they're, they're, they're people who have, 20 other things to do in the middle. They're also trying to make time for themselves and take care of themselves. Hence they're in a trial. But if that trial becomes everything, many people would be like, this is too much. Right. And, yeah. and one of the, one of the reasons, I think this is something of a learning for me because when I came into uh, this industry new after PhD, I always thought, why can't we just get data? What is the problem? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I remember uh, before working on a particular project, my TMM again, he, he's kind of like a mentor to me in some uh, By the way, TMM yes. is the uh, BI abbreviation the team member for medicine. the medical lead. Yeah. Medical lead, exactly. <laughs> so he, he invited me to come and attend a, sort of like a workshop where we essentially went through what a patient would go through in a typical day. Mm -hmm. I mean, in two hours, I was exhausted. I'm like, oh my God, are you telling me I have to do still 10 more of these? It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. So I think these kind of exercises really helps bridge the gap between you know us because I feel that statisticians, we always think in averages and, and summaries. Yeah. We are like, you know, what is one patient? Give me like 20, 30, then we'll talk. <laughs> so, 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 but the, the individual patient existence and their experience, uh, that's one way to connect us to that. And, and that was really interesting and, and you know, useful. Yeah, um, yeah. completely agree. That piece. Yeah. And now yeah. we can think, I'm like, oh, you know, is this too many questionnaire? Is this going to take too long? What about the patient burden? And these kind of questions also helps bridge the gap between statisticians and clinicians because they are also thinking in the similar line, right? Yeah. So I think in terms of these apps, I would foresee that they would be probably used outside of clinical trials at some point as well. Because, for example, insurance companies are really interested that the drugs that they pay are also taken, yeah? Because paying for a drug 
or that is not taken is just waste for them. Yeah. So uh, I could think of that, you know, uh, patients that use these apps, yeah, and where they demonstrate their, you know, adherence to, to medication actually uh, pay less for the insurance, for example. Yeah. Right. I think this was also a question which has been coming up a lot because, you know, we have been talking about implementing this placebo lead-in and this kind of uh, selection of patients based on that data. So hence, obviously, people are asking what is the regulatory implication? What yeah. will happen to the patient access? I think our opinion right now is that we have to be very careful that we are not essentially putting up walls for patients to access yeah. the drug. Right. The idea is not to prevent patients from accessing the drug, rather to help them get the best out of the drug. And simultaneously, yep. the insurance companies are happier because, you know, now the drugs are actually being taken and yep. they, then they should function as they have promised to, because now we're talking about approved products. Right. Yep. Um, so so yep. this is this is, I think, very important. Like we don't we have to make sure that it is not about restricting access. It's just about managing the access better. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. That was an awesome discussion about uh, how AI can change uh, healthcare, how AI can challenge um, how we run clinical studies. And it just started out with how could we improve, you know, from pill counting and, and <laughs> what, what we did for, for decades. And now that we have these, everybody has these smartphones in, in their pockets, which we didn't have 20 years ago when I was doing these kind of studies. It, it's, it's really, really awesome and, and lots of opportunity. And if you want to find out more about this, just head over to the effectivestatistician.com and search for Duty's name. That's probably the easiest way. Then you'll find this episode and also um, a link to the corresponding homepage. Thanks so much. Any final things that you would like to have the listener as a, as a key takeaway? Thank you, Alexander, first of all, for hosting me. I think this was really interesting chatting with you. I think the, the key takeaway for me, uh, which I would like to share with our audiences too, is, you know, think outside the box, right? So, so basically, just because something has been done for years and ages doesn't mean that's always the right thing to do. Uh, also, I think uh, the other important thing is when you try to convince people that you may have an idea which is worth pursuing, don't always say that my idea is better, but rather try to demonstrate it to some data or some comparison because numbers we understand, right? Yeah. You can compare, you can show that, look, this is how it is beneficial. This is how it's better. And that's a much better way of approaching a problem rather than saying, I know it's better. Yeah. Right. So that, that would be essentially the, and I, I hope that we find uh, many more use cases of this kind of uh, application. I am sure in the future, we'll see many other companies like AIQ or prop up. This is just the first one. Uh, but I do see that this is the future of patient adherence tracking. I don't think anyone would be satisfied with pill counts. Once you know the kind of, information and insight you can gather uh, from using apps like this one. Yeah, yeah. And it's just an app. It's not something like, you know, you need a complete new device for it. That's a cool yeah, It's not going to change your world. It's just going to change that the way we, you know, collect and interpret the data. That's yeah. it. Thanks so much. Thank you.
This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com. There you will find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you like this podcast, then please tell your colleagues about it and you'll find other listeners of this podcast in our LinkedIn community. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.